The following program is a podcast1.com production. So glad you're with us on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you learning ways to keep more of what you make. On the web, clark.com. When you have a question for me, clark.com slash ask. And you like deals? Well, you'll love this. Clarkdeals.com, where you can find out the latest, greatest deals available to stretch your wallet. Coming up in 20 minutes, there's a way some people are stretching their wallet that is a no-no in Clarkland. They're using borrowed money for a vacation. We got to talk about why that's not a good idea and why it's Clark Rages in just 20 minutes. And later this hour, there's a change in how your credit score works and how you'll be judged on your credit score. You need to know about this because there's been a hidden burden that many people have faced and have cost them higher interest rates. I'm going to tell you about the change that is going to make your life better and maybe make loans cheaper for you all right i am going to do something that will stun you i'm going to praise the irs don't adjust your hearing i actually have something positive to share with you about the irs the irs has been overwhelmed for years by problems involving tax ID theft. It has been something that's been out of control, and it's cost you and me as taxpayers huge money as fake returns have been filed, beating you to file a tax return, and then the crooks make off with virtually untraceable taxpayer money. All of us collectively spending billions and billions and billions of dollars coming out of all our collective pockets because of all the tax ID theft. And, you know, it doesn't seem to matter what part of tax ID, uh, sorry, what part of ID theft you talk about. It seems like it's out of control and spiraling to higher and higher growth rates. The one area where there's been enormous improvement, you guessed it, the IRS is doing a much better job getting ID theft under control than the banks and credit card companies are doing. The IRS has seen a roughly 50% drop in the number of people who are now ID uh, tax theft victims. So what happens is someone will beat you to filing with the IRS using your identity, your social security number, but posting false information that generates a massive fake refund that they're not entitled to. The money goes to the criminals And they make off with the money. You go to file your return. You get rejected. And then you have to file a paper return. If you were expecting a refund, expect it to take 10 to 14 months to get your refund. 
This has been a terrible burden for people. But the IRS has gotten so much better at implementing processes to truly verify the identity of somebody filing a tax return that they are ferreting out most of the phony filers. The tax ID thieves are never getting the money. Now, there's been an effect on taxpayers that I've stressed since January, and that is that refunds for the proper tax filer have been slowed down in many cases if the refund being applied for fits a profile that has often been used by tax ID thieves. So instead of your refund coming back to you in 10 days to 21 days, yours may go slower. But the process added in eliminates most of the tax ID theft going on. And so the IRS actually has done a great job with this. And they do a lot wrong. So when they do something right, they should be praised for that. Now, on the other hand, the nation's banks don't really seem to care about the problems with somebody seizing your identity and applying for credit as if they're you. Because for the banking industry, to put in proper procedures, I guess, would cost them more money to protect you than just doing things sloppy like they do and then having to write off the bad debt and you're left with your identity crushed and years and years of trying to clean up your reputation. The problem is the economic incentives have not been such for the banks to do their job. And that is a circumstance that calls for clear rules that when a bank is negligent in extending credit to a crook, to somebody falsely using your ID, there should be severe consequences for that bank when they fail to do proper identity verification. Because, again, here we have a situation where the IRS has actually been doing a much better job preventing tax ID theft. Why? Because they had billions going out the door. The banks, on the other hand, don't care because there is no such downside to them. And that is absolutely a shame that you and I are left exposed to the ID theft problem. Alan is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Alan. Hello, Clark. How are you today? Great, thank you. You want to talk IRS? Uh, Yes, I got a little surprise in the mail. Um, I'm uh, just turned 65, and uh, as part of that, although I'm still a working Joe, I... um, uh, filed for my Social Security benefits and just got my first uh, uh, payment in last month. And uh, this month, that I get a letter from the IRS saying, hey, we, you owe taxes uh, to the tune of uh, interest and penalties, $28,000 uh, due immediately from 2008. 
and we're going to levy your uh, or, or attach your Social Security benefits up to 15% uh, until the amount is paid. Wow, that's a very friendly welcome to receiving Social Security, isn't it? Exactly. Uh, get with one hand, take back with the other. Uh, but, but the real question, um, obviously this is beyond me knowing how to resolve this or, or potentially resolve it. And my, my initial question to you is, uh, is this something where you do try and talk directly with the IRS or do you get a tax consultant person or obviously you see the for-profit companies that advertise on the, the television. Yeah, about, stay away know. from all of those. Okay. All right, so let's go back to 2008. Was there something that could have happened last decade that would have left an unpaid tax bill? Well, that is, that is possible. I was involved in business at that time, and there is a possibility. Uh, but I haven't been able to research that back and find out what that is or what that potentially could be. Right. So most often when you have your own business or had your own business, it's something where the IRS believes you did not submit withholding that was collected from or deducted from employee paychecks. That's the most common reason. Well, I can tell you that would not be the case because there really were were no actual employees for the business. So then that level of, of tax due is incredibly high. Um, so what you normally would do in a case like this, there's no explanation at all from the IRS what the twenty eight grand is for. And they've not well, said... It just, it, well, the, the only other thing it references back to is a, uh, it does say 1040A form. Like that's, that's, an income, that's unpaid income tax, I would guess. So 1040A is a shorter version of... Uh, an annual tax filing form, the 1040. Mm-hmm. And it would be unusual if you had self-employment income. It's possible, but it would be unusual that you would have filed that with the 1040A. But if you did, right. it would mean that you filed it, but you did not have the money to pay the tax due in that year. Yeah, uh, but it's, I mean, that, that number does seem extremely high. That, okay. that would be taxable, that amount taxable. So I, so I am kind of at a loss on it. All right. So uh, what you do in a case like this is, in order to protect yourself, you need to have a professional representing you. And mm-hmm. there are a couple of ways you can go. There's actually a third way, but it's not really appropriate for this amount of money, which would be hiring a tax attorney. But what right. you would want is you'd want an enrolled agent who is someone who is uh, enrolled with the IRS to represent taxpayers, uh-huh. or you'd want a CPA who does tax. Did okay. you have a CPA back with your business last decade? Did you have somebody who helped you with your taxes and your accounting records? Well, for a, por- a portion of that, but I don't believe at that point there was. Okay, so you could go back and re-engage the person who represented you last decade because they'd have some knowledge or could look up some information on your business. Mm-hmm. And if you if things didn't end badly with that individual, I would start there. Okay. Um, on the other hand, if that was not a great relationship and the amount of money involved, I would consider either or an enrolled agent or a CPA who does tax. 
if you don't okay. know anyone of that sort, talk to friends you know own their own businesses and see who they use and how happy they are. Okay. But you uh, don't want to try to talk to the IRS directly on your own. You definitely don't want to hire one of those scammy outfits that advertise on TV that they're going to reduce your tax debt to cents on the dollar and all that. That's a bunch of baloney. And what you do want is somebody who you actually sit down with who becomes your advocate, your representative. And the number that they're saying you owe may not be anywhere close to what your actual tax liability is. And that's why you need your own representative to handle the process and negotiating with the IRS. So I wish uh, you the best. Like, and sure, the, the only other brief thing was, is there a particular way that you determine or find a registered agent that works uh, with the IRS? You mean an enrolled agent? Yes. Again, I prefer that you get referral from people you know who own their own businesses, that you get somebody to who's using someone to handle their taxes. Since it was a business issue, you want somebody who that's their area of experience and expertise. And I want to hear back from you how this plays out, because I know that letter must have been such a shock to you and the whole idea that out of the blue that you supposedly owe so much money. I want to hear how it actually does end up. Debt for lifestyle. It is a nasty thing for you to do to yourself. It is the topic of today's Clark Rageous Moment. Scams, ripoffs, outrages. It's a Clark Rageous Moment. Okay, so this is something that there have been two surveys on recently that people that are in college are taking student loan money and going on vacations. That's right. You wonder how so many college students today take these exotic trips, and it turns out they're mortgaging their future in many cases, roughly somewhere around a fourth to a third of college students are borrowing additional student loan money in order to take vacations. Now, this is something that doesn't happen in a vacuum because a lot of their parents are taking vacations with borrowed money, just running up on the credit cards or whatever to take a vacation. And so how do the kids learn? Hey, I should just borrow extra money I'm going to have to pay back for decades and decades. They learn it from us. So here's the thing. Lifestyle debt really, really messes up your life. Whether it's students using the student loans, other people using credit cards, or personal loans, or whatever, because, hey, I deserve it. I deserve it to go here, there, or somewhere else. But the reality is, it's a quaint idea. It's something that sounds to many people so antiquated. But when you want to take a vacation, save the money first. 
You know, it's something that sounds so trite today, but so many people in past years would go to a credit union and set up what's known as a vacation club savings account. And most credit unions still offer it, where every pay period or once a month or whatever, money automatically is deposited into a savings account that pays for your vacation. So you pre-funded it before you take it versus pulling out the plastic, spending the money, and then later having a post-vacation hangover that you owe all that money that's accumulating interest that you have to pay back. No matter how fun the vacation is, that is absolutely, completely clark Rageous. You know, when you're a kid, there are a lot of things that you think exist. Unicorns, dragons, mermaids, you name it. When you're a kid, it's real. But when you find out later that they don't, well, it's kind of disappointing. Of course, as you get older, you get over the disappointment. But when you're looking to buy a car, there's nothing worse than finding the one of your dreams online, and then you find out later it doesn't really exist. It's not true. That's why at TrueCar, they show you real pricing on actual inventory. This isn't pricing offered to you by TrueCar. It's an actual VIN-based price from a TrueCar certified dealer in your area. Real prices. And these aren't just any dealers either. TrueCar certified dealers are a carefully curated network of dealers committed to transparency. They offer competitive prices and a faster, easier buying experience for you. It's a fact. True Car customers are more likely to enjoy a faster buying process when they connect with the True Car certified dealers. And, on average, they save over $3,000 off the MSRP. So when you're ready to buy that dream car, visit True Car and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. I'm so glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to save more and spend less. And don't let anyone ever rip you off. Clark.com is our website. Our deal site is ClarkDeals.com. And, you know, when you have a question, we offer so many ways for you to get it answered. One is we offer nine hours a day free off-the-air advice where you can talk with a member of our team and get an answer to your question. If you go to Clark.com, scroll down the front screen, you'll see how to get free off-the-air advice. That's a service of our show now for, gosh, how many years is it? Uh, Almost 25 years now we've offered free off-the-air advice. One area that has generated so many questions on-air, off-air, every possible way the frustrations people have with inaccuracies on credit reports. And there have been things that have ended up on credit reports that have devastated credit scores that have been just amazing. One of the ones that has been a source of calls over the years has involved parking tickets. Who knew that a parking ticket could demolish your credit score? Well, fortunately... There were so many problems in that area that finally the credit bureaus threw up their hands and said, we're not doing that anymore for those, for library fines. Um, One area also that's led to a lot of disputes that have ended up on credit reports and then devastated your credit score, gym memberships. 
where the contract-oriented gym clubs are all about your wallet and not about your health, and they have used the power of ruining your credit as a way to force money out of you that maybe you don't owe. And so these areas that are absolutely not at all predictors of how you would pay bills generally are no longer being used as a way to judge you. And now another one that I have addressed, and it's so ironic, I started talking about this, must be 15 years ago, and then was able to share my own experience with you roughly six years ago, and that was where there was a lien showing on one of my three credit reports that had brought a mortgage loan to a halt for me, and the only problem with it was there was no lien against me, but it was showing on one of my credit reports. And the hassle and the effort to get the record clear and get that off my report was something I shared with you because I'd had it from so many callers, and then, bam, it happened in my own life. Well, now, according to several published reports, the credit bureaus are about to end the practice of using tax liens and judgments as a way to eat you up for credit unless they go through a multi-step process of validating that it really is a valid tax lien or judgment against you. The reality is, as a practical matter, the credit bureaus don't want to go to the expense involved in doing proper verification of a lien or a judgment, and odds are even legitimate ones will not show up on your credit report. Now, remember, this is this has been a problem for so long with credit reports is the lack of accuracy with them. And the number of people who suffer harm because of inaccuracies in credit reports is just ridiculous. And the most recent study found that one in five of us have an error so serious on our credit report that it could lead to denial of a loan or a higher interest rate or could even cost us a job because of the errors on a report. And that's why, even as things get improved, where unless information is properly verified or of a nature that really governs how you'll do paying a bill, it's not going to be there to mess you up. The fact is, most of us, think ignorance is bliss when it comes to our own credit reports, when the reality is knowledge is what should make you blissful. And the reason is, I think how often somebody will say when I ask, well, how's your credit? And they'll say, oh, I think it's just okay or whatever. And they've already psyched themselves out. Maybe their credit's much better than they realize. Or maybe they have things on there that aren't accurate. Or maybe there are things on there that are minor, but fouling you up that you should take care of. And that's why, if you've not done so, I want you to use the the free service, annualcreditreport.com, 
to get a copy of your credit report from each bureau. You can either spread it out over the course of a year or get all three at once, your choice. But see what's there. See what the reality is and deal with it. And know that it is so common that there will be stuff there that should not be. Carrie is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Carrie. Hi, Clark. How are you? Great, thank you. You went in together with people to buy a, a home, is that right? That's correct, to buy a property, and we're treating it as rental property. And I just, we've got, we've had income late last year. We finished the remodel on it and had income last year. And now it's tax time and just trying to figure out if we need to do a limited liability partnership or if there's a different way to structure it um, for tax purposes. Okay, that's a great question. So the reason you would generally do, uh, most common status you would do now is a LLC. Right. Is to protect the owners from um, liability issues, not specifically for tax reasons. Okay. So you would do it so that in the event somebody got hurt or claimed to be hurt at your rental property or something bad happened at your rental property, that they're going after the LLC instead of each of you as part owners individually. Okay. And that's so, why people would do it. But do you have a loan on the property, or did each of you put up cash? For we your all sh- put up cash, yeah. If everybody put up cash, then it is likely a good idea to establish an LLC for that property. Okay. And there are, uh, just about everywhere in the country, there are real estate lawyers who specialize, as one of the things they do, is they do single-property LLCs. Okay. And I like that versus you using one of those online services because you want to make sure that you're doing it as best fits real estate laws in the state where the property is located. Okay, so in the state that the property is located. Okay. Right. Now, the way you can find somebody like that is in most mid-sized and large markets now, there are real estate investor clubs and you, okay. can, you can hunt around on Google probably or whatever search engine you like to find one in the area where the rental property is. And you're likely to find lawyers that are like associate members or depending on the real estate investors club, they may even be full members who offer their services to real estate investors and specialize in doing those LLCs. But again, okay. this is unrelated principally to the question you asked about tax. Okay. So for this first year for the property you acquired last year, you'll be able to um, take the cost of the property and you do a long-term depreciation schedule for it. Okay. And how many of you are in this property together? Just three. So the three of you, if any of the three of you has someone who does your tax work for you, yeah, I do. In fact, um, my my restaurant agent had recommended to to do that. Um, I guess my thing was sometimes I felt like I had another lawyer tell me sometimes you just need to wait a year and see if it all flows before you actually establish establish things. So, well, that's an interesting thought. But 
uh, are you would you say all three of you are all in yes we are if you're all in then if they're willing to let your tax person do the depreciation schedule on the property to handle how the improvements will be uh, properly accounted for on your taxes and then issue um, the profit or loss from this property because it doesn't have to be a true legal entity for it to be uh, something that reflects a rent and royalty statement for the three of you. Gotcha. That would change if you do make it an LLC. Then it would be like its own living, breathing thing. And each of you would get uh, the equivalent of a tax return for the rental property that would be included on your own personal return. So that's, in other words... If we do an L, a non-legal LLC, then we basically well, it's don't not, get it's it. not an yet. LLC. I mean, the three of you can own it together. You all agree on what the business arrangement is, and then you report it in thirds, as your tax person would say. Okay. All right. So, so we it's just it's it's the same. ID. It's pretty much the same procedure for reporting profit or loss from the rental property for each of the three of you. The only difference would be you may next year be doing it as an LLC instead of just something the three of you own together. Right. Okay, so your recommendation would probably go ahead and do the LLC? Well, if the three of you are going to own it together and you think you're going to be comfortable owning it together, I would go ahead and do the LLC for the liability issues involved. Okay. All right, super. And I, I just want to say thank you because I've listened to you for a lot and you've helped me personally so much. So you do a great job. Well, you are so kind to say that and I hope that the three of you end up doing very well with this rental property. Chuck is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Chuck. Hi, Clark. How are you? Great, thank you. I understand you want to talk about credit freeze. Yeah, I've uh, I've listened to you a long time. First time I've called. Uh, I think you've got a great show. Um, Thank you. I finally decided we've done some loans with interest rates and refis in the past, but it doesn't look like we're doing anything in the near future. So my wife and I, or I put my wife and I, we did separate credit freezes with all three credit bureaus. Uh, and I had a couple of questions. Um, if my wife applies for a job someplace or we move in, uh, the rental application, do those show up as credit hits, and can they get access to that? And I've got the credit fees in place. It's been in place for about a couple of weeks, and that's what's generated these questions. So when you need to lift the freeze, do you live, do I see you live in California? That's correct. California um, has just about the highest fees in the country, on credit freeze, and when you need to temporarily thaw to thaw your credit file. So they charge $10 yeah. when you need to temporarily thaw. So when somebody needs to do an inquiry on your credit, like you mentioned, moving and you have to have utilities decide you're okay and all that, you have to do a a thaw or what's sometimes referred to as a temporary lift and when you move i recommend you leave your credit exposed for 30 days so that regardless of how many applications 
for new service or credit there might be at a new address, you've got it thawed to cover what would be a reasonable period of time, which will usually be a month. Okay. And if I'm applying for a job, uh, I don't know if the employer is doing a credit check or if the rental apartment is doing a credit check. Do I have to ask them first so I know to thaw it before? Yeah, because you don't even know wh- you don't even know which bureau you'd need to thaw till you ask them. Ah, okay. Okay. So, so when the thaw is done, what's neat about it is with those secret codes. The thaw generally takes only seconds to take effect. The bureaus try to protect themselves by saying it could be a few hours or whatever. Whenever I've had to thaw my credit, what's been neat, Chuck, is that I can thaw it when I'm on the phone with somebody where I'm applying for new service somewhere and say, okay, check my credit again right now. Bam! They're able to do so virtually in a nanosecond. Credit freeze is such a great way to protect yourself from identity thieves. Jerry joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Jerry. Jerry. Hi, Clark. How, How you are doing? you today? What's that, Jerry? Good. Pleasure to talk to you. Well, great having you here. How can I be of service? Well, I heard your comment a while ago about if you found some money, what you would do. And uh, I thought I would make a comment on what I would do. I'd love to hear because uh, this is all, about I found it. This is about the twenty dollars I found on the ground. Right. Well, if I found it at a drive-in, what I would do is I would go inside and I would talk to the girl at the window and also the manager and tell them that I found some money. And I would give them my name and address and telephone number and tell them that if anybody asked for it, they could call me and I'd be happy to give it to them. And after so much time, if nobody calls, what I would do is I would take it to church and put it in the collection plate. Well, that is so interesting. You know, we have the poll going on right now on our Facebook page and at Clark.com and the results are three-quarters of people said that if they found $20 on the ground, they would just pick up the money and keep it. And then your choice is kind of like the third one on the list, which is pick the money up and donate it to charity. Uh, we had a very small percent of people who voted so far who said they'd leave the money where it is, you know, instead of picking it up. And uh, another very small number who felt that they would do what I did, which is I went over and gave it to someone at the restaurant. And I want to know, and I appreciate your perspective, Jerry. That's very interesting. What you said is go listen to the audio of the whole scenario and think through what you would do, because from time to time, you're going to find something that isn't yours, and it's going to be a question of how do you handle it? What's the right thing to do? And I'd love to see what you have to say. You should see the posts on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Clark Howard. What comments people are putting about what they would do, what they have done in situations where they found somebody's precious or valuable item or money. Check it out at Clark.com at our Facebook page. 
Hey guys, David Smalley here, reminding you to check out Dogma Debate on the Podcast One app, iTunes, and basically everywhere else you could possibly hear a podcast. Dogma Debate is basically a way for you to peek in on conversations you've always wondered about. Say a hardcore anti-gay preacher meets an atheist who knows the Bible like the back of his hand, or a far-left social justice warrior meets a different kind of liberal who doesn't want to join in on the riots. On Dogma Debate, I talk to people who completely disagree with me, and I let them tell me why they think I'm wrong, why I should be on their team, and why they take such an extreme stance. And sometimes you'll just hear me hanging out with like-minded people and laughing during segments like Republicans Say the Darndest Things or Fact Check Yo Mama. It all happens on Dogma Debate, right here on Podcast One. Glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you and your wallet. I want you to learn ideas to me so that you can save more and spend less. And don't let anyone rip you off. An example of that, the banks can be awfully devilish. I'm going to tell you something you need to know in just 30 minutes to keep you from being ripped off by the banks. Our web address, Clark.com, when you have a question for me, Clark.com slash ask. I want to talk right now about traffic apps like Waze. My wife says that uh, in our family, she picks out dogs, but I get to name them. And she's been trying to con me into saying we should have another dog because we need to have a dog named Waze. We have two dogs right now. And their names, by the way, are Margaret Thatcher and Winston Churchill. But again, I I got to pick those names because those are two of my political heroes. Anyway, and so I love the traffic app Waze. And so she's like, so we need to have another dog named Waze. I'm like, not so fast. But what Waze is so good at is when traffic isn't moving so fast, it helps you get around it. And I had mentioned months ago, I go to Los Angeles fairly regularly for the show. And my last trip to L.A. after I came back, I talked about how no one on the show crew ever wants to be the one who has to go with me to Los Angeles because I'm such a pain to be with because the traffic just makes me go crazy. And that I realized that I don't complain about the traffic anymore. And the whole reason why is Waze has changed the experience for me getting me around not just southern california but like anywhere i go it gets me around terrible terrible traffic tie-ups you know years ago when i first learned to really love ways was when i was on the way to a book signing near hartford and ended up in a terrible traffic jam because of a, a tragic accident on the interstate And Waze got me around that like you could not believe, and I made the book signing on time that I would not have made otherwise. And so this traffic app, W-A-Z-E, uses artificial intelligence and the wisdom of all of us collectively to give you ideas and ways to get around traffic that you'd never think of. And even in a city I'll know well, I'll let Waze guide me because if there is a traffic tie-up, it'll take me 
ways that are so counterintuitive that I may be trying to go east and it'll have me start by going west or north or whatever. And recently I was trying to go south and then east and it had me actually go north, then west, and then circle back around to the south and the east. And it actually worked taking me this convoluted, crazy way and got me around a terrible tie-up. But what it's also doing is it's forcing me essentially to trespass into quiet residential neighborhoods because so many people are using ways that we're going on a route diversion that it'll have and a neighborhood that's very quiet and as the birds chirping and all that, suddenly has one of us after another after another using the neighborhood as a cut through. So now communities are striking back. There's an area that Waze used to take me in an area I go in Florida that now I go down the street and it now dead ends. They've made the street where it dead ends from both the north and the south kind of halfway through the cut through. So it's now a no longer cut through. And a lot of streets now and a lot of metro areas are not allowing you to, to turn into the neighborhoods during morning and evening rush hour. When I try to go see my primary care doctor, there was a really great cut through I learned from ways that I can't take anymore unless I'm going to the doctor during off hours because I'm no longer allowed to turn into that neighborhood. By the way, they even ban people who live in the neighborhood from turning into their own neighborhood during those hours. And so it's going to be a game of cat and mouse. The biggest problem with Waze, if you use it, where there haven't been these moves to restrict you using the weird ways it comes up for you to go, is that many times it'll take you to a point where you have to take a left turn without the advantage of a red light. And that's a problem. What I find myself doing many times is I'll come to a red light, where, I'm, where an intersection where there is no red light and I'm supposed to take an impossible left. I take a right and then work my way back. So I outweighs ways in order to do it. I just want you to know that this is a phenomenal, phenomenal app that if you tend to use Uh, Whatever mapping program comes on your phone, take the time to download Waze and give it a try, and it may really improve your commute or your drive, especially if you're in an unfamiliar area. Amy is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Amy. Hi, how are you? Great, thank you. You want to talk about hitting the bullseye on the retirement target. I do. Um, Looking at the proper use or misuse of retirement funds, and I'm being told from some sources that um, you need to have 100% of your investment in the retirement fund, target retirement fund, or none. Well, I wouldn't say 100% or none, but the idea is that if, let's say you're building... A portfolio in a 401k 
or you're building one in a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA, the idea is that if you're, for people who aren't aware of what we're talking about, a target retirement fund is where you pick a year kind of in the ballpark of when you expect to retire. And they tend to be in uh, five-year increments, like year 2030, 2045, whatever, every five years, that you're messing up the whole purpose of the target retirement fund if you put money into it and then still put money into other things in your retirement plan or retirement account. Yes. So it's not like it's not like it's something you shouldn't do. It's just suggested that if the whole idea is to try to get the right mix of stuff that you're invested in, that it really is only effective if you go all in on the target retirement fund. Where are you okay. where are you in your head with this and how does it affect you? Well, I have it as a choice um, in my mix, but I have also picked individuals within my 401k, and um, I just have this as part of it, and I'm hearing that um, the rate of return that I would expect would be or could be, on average, about 2% less um, than if I were to put it all in the target retirement fund. You know, I, I can't speak to whether you would have an overall lower return over the years by diversifying out from it. The idea of the target retirement fund is really for a different purpose. It's to put you in a position where you have the proper level of risk at different stages of your work life and then as you get closer to retirement. So there's no there's nothing that says that you taking some of your money in your 401k and putting it in other choices is going to get you a lower return. It's even possible that could get you a higher return, but it also might involve over the years potentially more risk to you in losses you could suffer at various points of your work life. Sure, okay. So okay. I wouldn't I wouldn't take if anybody says, "Oh, putting 40% in the target retirement fund and putting the other 60% in other things is going to get you a lower return. That's not an accurate statement. Okay. I appreciate the information. Okay. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. What's amazing with the target retirement funds is that any of a number of providers of those in a IRA, Roth IRA, or 401k are offering extremely low costs on them, and others offering very high costs on the target retirement fund portfolio. Vanguard, which is generally considered to be the gold standard, charges typically like 0.15 of 1% to 0.20 of 1%, where other providers may charge as much as more than 1% for having money in a target retirement fund. That difference decimates eventually how much money you'll have to live on in retirement. Those expenses really matter over time. Scott is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Scott. Hey, Clark. Uh, thanks again for taking my call. Certainly. Um, recently, I had called and spoken with you about selling some property, uh, lakefront property out of state that was undeveloped. 
And uh, there was a, a, a little banter between my wife and I concerning whether or not we want to sell at FISBO or through the real estate agent. And uh, you, had, you, you had actually settled a great argument, which is unrare. <laughs> I wouldn't argue in my house, which is very, very rare in my case. But uh, you had suggested it's very difficult to sell at FISBO, and you suggested go ahead and doing so through a real estate agent. Um, well, I spoke to some of, the, some of my friends at work, and uh, one of the friends suggested just reach out to your neighbor. Maybe they may want to buy the property. And I did, and just just so happens they had been wanting to purchase the property. So um, I'm, um, I gave them an offer. They countered, and uh, I, I, I finally suggested, okay, if you pay the uh, closing cost, um, sure, I'll go ahead and, and, and go through it. Well, let me but, stop uh, you right there. By the way, sure. that was a great suggestion from the person at work. <laughs> Yeah, it was, and 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 unfortunately, no. Now I've lost the argument. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you didn't lose the argument. That was like an annex to it. That that is a really great idea. It's kind of like what I always talk about when somebody is stuck with a timeshare. That the best Uh people who are potential buyers are people that are staying at that timeshare. So you've already got somebody who's pre-qualified if they live adjacent to you at a vacation property. And, and um, you know, it, it, it just worked out perfectly. Unfortunately, though, um, I've never sold property. She's never sold property. So she came back and said, okay, what next? And so I'm just kind of calling to kind of get an idea of what I should expect. I'm assuming she's going to have a lawyer do a title search and, and, and so forth. But Well, that is part of the deal is that, okay. that a lawyer draws up the agreement. This is a sale of raw land, if I remember right. When you Correct, exactly. Nothing so, on it. So with raw land, that's a pretty easy contract for a real estate attorney to draw and then to handle the sale of the property. So since you've already agreed on the price, the terms, and I assume when the closing would take place approximately – not, not necessarily. I mean, we've, we've agreed on the, uh, I've agreed to sell, I've agreed to the price, and she's agreed to uh, handle whatever closing costs are, are, are necessary. It's just uh, no, no, date, no timeline has been set yet, no date. So you don't, uh, until you have the date, you don't really truly have a deal, but it sounds like okay. you're going to make a true deal with the neighbor that, that's really great for both parties. So the only thing left to do is for once you settle on, normally I'd talk about in real estate why you each should have your own lawyer, blah, blah, blah. In this case, right. it doesn't sound like that's necessary at all. Let, no, they're, they're, wonderful, they're wonderful people, great neighbors. Then uh, let, them, the let them pick the lawyer, years. and then the two okay. of you, after she's briefed the lawyer, then the two of you have a conference call together with the lawyer. The lawyer will make it clear that he or she is representing that person, not you, but again, okay. there's a friendly transaction, so it's just to iron out details, and the lawyer will have some that you and I aren't even going to think about that they'll bring to the table. Okay, that's fine. Uh, one other question, if you don't mind. Oh, by the way, tell um, your wife she's right. <laughs> Always do. Uh, by the way, uh, capital gains tax, uh, is there some way I can put this off or i've been reading up about it you can it. but but like- i don't recommend because tax rates are okay. still favorable enough how much gain are you going to have on the sale of the land uh, probably about 20 to 25,000 pay your tax cuz uh, doing the exchange where you have to identify where you have to have somebody 
hold the money as an intermediary. You have all these things you got to do to identify the next property and all that. Just forget all that. Just take the money, pay the relatively okay. small amount of tax you'll have, which will be just a few thousand dollars, and be done with it. Put it in your pocket. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Clark. I appreciate sure. it. Have a great day. It's time for Ask Clark. That's where you post a question for me at Clark.com, and then our producer, Joel, will ask your question for you. What you got? Clark John wrote in. He says, wouldn't it be better to self-insure for roadside assistance rather than forking over the $100-ish a year to a service like AAA? That's $1,000 over 10 years, and I'm thinking it might be smarter just to call a tow truck when I'm in need. Well, the other issue that various AAA affiliates have is timely dispatch of help or service when you need it. And that's probably the number one reason why people may or may not renew AAA in a year. Um, Many people now will buy coverage that you can buy from your own automobile insurer, but beware and wary that some insurers will treat a call for a tow as a claim and will harm you shopping for other auto insurance or even with them. My favorite alternative now, you mentioned self-insuring. There's something that is the same cost as self-insuring, free, but gives you a benefit because of the hyper-competitive credit card market today. There are several credit card issuers that now give you roadside assistance as one of those little-known benefits that come with your card. Many of the um, cards that are available under the Visa Signature line include roadside assistance as a free benefit. Stay tuned for 60 seconds of AP News headlines right after this podcast. Glad you've joined us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to keep more of what you make. Follow me at facebook.com slash Howard. Clark.com is our website. And when you're looking for deals, ClarkDeals.com. When you're looking for deals, don't go to a giant monster mega bank. Don't do it. There's an item today in the New York Post that says bank fees rise to all-time high and nobody can stop them. That is not true. You can stop them. It's all about where you choose to do your banking. Because when you talk about the giant monster mega banks, the fees are unreal. I mean, just overdraft revenue for Chase, Wells Fargo, and Bank of America last year just overdraft almost $5.5 billion from ATMs, $6.5 billion. And this is just at the giant monster megabanks. Okay, so they go through what the typical person is paying for fees. And I love this. I'm just going to read what they said in the New York Post. It just might be a sign of the devil. Annual bank fees are now costing some weary customers an average of $666 a year. That's like a headline writer's dream, right? But here's what you need to know. You don't have to pay a penny. How? Well, if you go to an online bank, 
you're not going to pay any of those fees. Online banks are taking more and more market share. You go to credit unions, most credit unions, you're going to be able to do the equivalent of banking without a fee. You go to a small local bank, you're likely to avoid the fees. Remember, the giant monster megabanks, which there are four, the one that wasn't in either of those stats, Citibank, the four giant monster megabanks account for roughly half of banking in the United States. They serve people who are not price sensitive. And so they have fee on top of fee on top of fee. And what they sell is the idea of convenience. But the reality is, because most of us don't need the bank branch anymore, and most of us do our quote-unquote banking on our smartphones, those networks they have of all those branches and all that, you're just paying for something you don't need and you don't use. So the answer, if you're doing business with one of the four giant monster megabanks, fire them. Fire them. And while I'm on that topic, Wells Fargo, nobody going to prison for all the criminal acts involved in opening millions of accounts that people didn't ask for, didn't request, phony accounts, bank employees, bank officers engaging in acts of identity theft, impersonating people to open accounts so they could meet quotas and get bonuses. Nobody goes to prison. And now to add ultimate insult to the injury to the American people two million times over, Wells Fargo, in courts all around the country, is alleging that you have no right to go after them in a court of law because their customer agreements for accounts you open say that any dispute must be handled in arbitration. So I want you to think about this. Wells Fargo that opened accounts in a vast criminal conspiracy two million times over and says they're learning from their mistakes. Baloney! Because if you say somebody who never was a party to opening the account doesn't have a right to go after you in a court of law because your your account thing says that you can't sue them? I wasn't a party! to opening an account that I didn't open, that they impersonated me and opened that account. But the big thing is, regardless of whether the judges give Wells what they want, the reality is, what does it tell you about the bank that even when they messed up criminally, they think they should never be subject to the laws of the United States of America? Why would you do business with somebody like that? Why? And why, again, is yet another giant monster megabank getting away with a conspiracy of criminal behavior and criminal acts?
Nobody in handcuffs. Nobody doing the perp walk. Why do you think they're going to change what they do other than just window dressing when they are obviously running a long-running criminal conspiracy, opening accounts that customers didn't know about and didn't ask for? Come on, Wells Fargo. Come and answer. Why would you tell people that you messed up but you're going to do right by them and then you turn around and say, but even though we messed up, you don't have any right to take action against us? Is that somebody you should do business with? You know, they may be in a position, a privilege, because of all the dirty money that spreads around Washington. And they may be above the laws that govern you and me. But you and I have the power of the marketplace and our own pockets to not do business with someone who engages in year after year after year of criminal acts and is able in this time of corruption in America that they're able to just get away with it? Not with your money, not with my money. Fred is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Fred. Clark, thanks for all you do for us. We get a lot of information from you. Well, thank you. I'm sorry I got so riled up and fired up there. (laughs) When it comes to money, uh, character's revealed, isn't it? Uh, You see the best in people and the worst, don't you? You sure do. Clark, uh, I've been contacted by a friend regarding a multi-level marketing company that's uh, promoting a digital coin, and I'm not really familiar with what digital coins are, and they're talking about going public, and they're not registered with the SEC, and it looks like a Ponzi scheme to me, but I was wondering if you had any information regarding digital coins. All right, so when people refer to digital coin, that's generally a generic term for the one brand name that did establish itself in the marketplace called Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is an alternative way for people to pay for things around the world. And it is what's generally referred to as a cryptocurrency. It's not a government-backed money. It is one that is accepted based on a daily value that people who are willing to buy and sell Bitcoins are willing to take that value. What you're calling about is not Bitcoin somebody who's trying to trade on that, basically. What is it that you would do if you were to get involved in this um, coin business? I supposedly don't have to do anything. It just, uh, you you buy it, uh, you invest a certain amount of money, anywhere from 150 to, I don't know, $5,000. And then the coin is like two is worth like two or three cents now, and it keeps supposing to rise. Supposedly, it's going to rise, and uh, they're going to start where they're going to start a company where you can use your coins. Okay, so I would not go anywhere close to that because first of all, when somebody any of us could say today, we're going to have. Fred money, or we're going to have Clark money. 
and uh-huh. you want to buy Fred money because it's going to go through the roof. And I'm going to say Fred money is worth so much money today, but I can tell you in the future, you're going to make a fortune on Fred money. Yeah. <laughs> or Clark money. So, so I would tell you that having alternative payment forms is going to be part of the future, but they're not designed to be an investment. They're designed to be a payment platform, just another way to buy and sell things. And somebody who's uh-huh. promising that you're getting in on the ground floor of a get-rich-quick thing, I would say I would not get involved with anything like that. There are commissions that you are eligible for if you do this and get other people to buy them or anything like that? Yeah, there's yeah, there's uh you get a commission if you can bring other people in. That's what set my antenna up. Uh and how much commission like if you get me to buy you said $150 worth. If you get me to buy $150 worth of this this electronic coin, how much do you get of the commission? I get a 10 so you get fifteen dollars, and then whoever is putting this together gets the hundred and thirty-five. Uh, evidently, and the whole product is this supposed money that you're supposed to trust in that doesn't actually exist yet to be used to buy and sell things. That's that's the the story. Okay, I would tell you, don't even think about getting involved in that because that is. There's no true product or service that's being sold if it's just speculation that at some point people will be able to use these electronic coins. And that sounds to me like that could very dangerously end up being an illegal pyramid, an illegal game of chance. So I would, unless, unless you are somebody who really loves the whole idea of gambling, do you love to gamble? I do a little bit, yeah. Well, then go to Vegas. Take in a show. Enjoy all the glitz and the lights and all that. But don't get involved in something that may well turn out to be an illegal pyramid, a Ponzi scheme, an illegal game of chance. And this whole thing with the virtual currency is a very nerve-wracking thing for me. Adam is with us on the Clark Howard Show. And Adam... Congratulations are in order to you. Is that true? That is correct. Yes, sir. Thank you. I appreciate that. We've worked very hard. What's happened, Adam? Well, uh, here in the next uh, three to four weeks, uh, four weeks max, uh, my wife and I will be completely debt-free, except for the mortgage. And that's actually where my question is coming from today. All right. Well, um, congratulations to you for having no lifestyle debt whatsoever, the freedom that's going to give you, it's just going to feel so good. We, we are already uh, blessed, so, and it, uh, we just can't even imagine uh, the things that we're going to be able to do, so we're very excited. That's great. So where does the mortgage fit into this picture? That's something that my wife and I have been kind of uh, talking about is what should be our next priority. Should our priority be to... Uh, tackle the mortgage and uh, pay the mortgage completely down, and that way we truly are 100% debt-free, or should we um, start uh, putting additional uh, money into our 401k, or should we stack up 
our savings account and have the ideal uh, nine months of uh, savings in there in case one of us ends up being unemployed for some reason. Wow, you are a planner. So yeah, and you, you have know, every about- every option you have is a bright, beautiful option because you've created the possibility to have great options. So all it is is a matter of what might be the best priority with nothing but good choices. So let me start with a question that is key. What is your mortgage interest rate? Right now, it's actually pretty low, I believe. It's about 3.6%. Fixed for the life of the loan? Correct. No priority at all paying extra on that. So when I look at priorities, 401k, do you both have 401ks? Um, I have my own 401k through my employer, and then she's a school teacher, so they have a different system set up. But yes, we do both have retirement. Okay. And are each of you putting in enough contribution to get whatever match there might be on the retirement plan? Uh, that plus additional, yes. So you're not doing Roth IRAs, I would guess. No, no, we are not. That and would that be was the other option go ahead. we were trying to explore. Because the Roth is what I would do next. Because okay. if you do the Roth, it has such innate built in tax advantages and then also has the flexibility in the event you had a financial catastrophe like the job loss and not enough money coming in or whatever. So with the Roth, you can put in, with maximum flexibility, $0 in a year up to 5500 each into the Roth. Okay. And the beauty of the Roth is even though you don't get any tax break putting money in, the money in it grows tax-free, and if left alone into retirement, is spent tax-free. So it's a beautiful mix with the 401k you're doing, and she's probably doing a 403b, that those are both pre-tax things. The Roth gives you a post-tax pile of money. And so having in retirement a pre-tax pile of cash and a post-tax pile of cash allows you to do proper planning with where your next dollar should come from, where you manage your tax bill, in each year of retirement. Okay, very good. And if you look at my investment guide at Clark.com, I have my favorite cheap choice companies to open up a Roth. And the beauty is you can invest in them. Uh, Once you have one open, you can add little amounts to it each month or each pay period to big amounts whenever it works in your life as long as you don't exceed the annual maximum of 5500 each. So that would be the highest priority, I would see. And again, congratulations to both of you on becoming lifestyle debt-free. No rush on that mortgage at 3.6, though. Thanks for listening to the Clark Howard Podcast. Download new episodes every Monday through Friday at podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com. 
I'm Rob Cisternino, the aptly named Rob Has a Podcast, where we're creating fun, smart conversation around reality TV games like Survivor. And this March, Survivor Game Changers is finally here. Join me weekdays for episode recaps, player interviews, and of course, your feedback. So if you're ready for a game change in your own Survivor experience, Download Rob Has a Podcast at podcastone.com on the Podcast One app or subscribe on iTunes. What we're learning about the Manchester bomber. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. The father of the alleged Manchester suicide bomber says his son didn't do it. We don't believe in killing innocents, he told the AP. But the father reportedly was a member of an al-Qaeda-backed group in Libya years ago. That, according to a former Libyan security official. Meanwhile, police have carried out raids on a block of apartments in Manchester. Witnesses say they heard explosions. Alan Kinsey was a neighbor of the alleged bomber. The actual family that had been there, I'd, I'd never really come across them yeah. in bad ways. It was always, even when I said hello, they never seemed to speak back to you. It was just like kept themselves to themselves, and that was about it. The British putting more military troops on the streets now as police say it's clear this is a network they're investigating. President Trump has arrived in Brussels for NATO meetings after a visit this morning with the Pope at the Vatican. I'm Rita Foley.